0: The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit POMH.org. Who knows? James chapter 1, verses 9-11 through 11 is where we are this morning. And as you're turning your copies of Scripture there, I just want to remind us of uh, how we got to this point so far. We saw the very first sermon with James that he is describing himself as a servant of Christ. and in, in doing so, he situates... Both himself and his readers, the immediate readers, and even us today, under the lordship of Christ. So, everything that we see in James ought to remind us that this is because if we believe in Christ, we are under his lordship. So, there shouldn't really be a distinction or a difference between what we believe and how we behave. And then he encouraged us to understand trials as joy. The big question we had was, how can you possibly consider a trial as joy? And what we saw is that trials remind us of Christ and his suffering and our hope of a future with him. And so, no matter what the circumstances are, these are temporary, and Christ is walking through us, or he's walking with us through the trials, and eventually, one day, Uh, These trials will themselves suffer and yet do so without hope. Well, then there was a question on the table that I think was answered last week. Well, how do we come to consider trials as being joy? And the answer we saw from last week was wisdom. James says you can ask God, if you lack wisdom, for wisdom, and he will give it to you. The catch is you have to ask in faith, because if you don't ask in faith... You're like a two-souled person. This word he kind of constructs. There's two people inside of you. One person wants to believe fully in the wisdom that God is going to give him or her, but then the other person's on the DL, not so sure about this wisdom that's going to come. He says, no, you must be one person fully in faith when you ask for wisdom, and he will not withhold giving that wisdom to you. Well, this week, James is going to contrast the wisdom that God gives us to the wisdom that we receive from humanity. If you pray for wisdom, God will give you his wisdom. And once you have his wisdom, it comes with God's perspective on things. And here is God's perspective on the immediate trial, the immediate uh, suffering that the original audience to this letter was facing. And it's this. The wisdom of God tells us to stop putting our perspective, or, or I should say, stop putting our hope for exaltation in the wrong things. We ought to stop looking around, looking for hope of exaltation out of the suffering and the trials and the sins that we find ourselves in, in all the wrong things, specifically wealth. And we ought to start looking to the wealth of joy in our exaltation in Christ. And that's going to be James's big point today. Now, Before we jump into this passage, James is weaving together an incredibly thick and dense Uh, argument here that's pulling a lot from the Old Testament in Isaiah and in Jeremiah and in Job and in the Psalms and also in the teachings of Christ in the Gospels. He is condensing a ton of information by using key words that are so rare we only find them in certain passages In the Old Testament. So we're definitely diving into the deep end of the pool today because I want to explore all of the rivers of thought that's emptying into this tributary of James, if that makes sense. Maybe another way to put it is if you were to ask James, well, how are you going to lay this out? He's going to say, well, I'm going to take a pound of Isaiah. And then I'm going to take three ounces of Job, and I'm going to take a pinch of the Psalms, bake it for an hour and a half, and voila. I don't know if an hour and a half is long enough. I don't bake. Uh, my wife's really into the great British baking show right now. Uh, and that is so boring, so boring to me. But for an hour and a half, she's not here. I'll, uh, I'll apologize for that joke when she shows up in the next service. But he's just taking all these different sources together. And I want us to look at each of these sources instead of just flying over them uh, into the next passage because I think it makes it so much richer for us. So really today, James only has one point. Stop looking for exaltation in all the wrong places. That's it. That's his point. We can go home. Stop looking for exaltation in all the wrong places. James 9 So the first part of 10, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. What does this mean? This verse seems like it's a good standalone verse, very tweetable, right? Under 250 characters, you can get away with it. But I would say that we ought not to look at this verse just by itself. We need to understand that it's connected to the verses before it. Maybe a, a, another way to understand what he's saying is, relatedly, from what I just told you, the brother in humble stances, circumstances should boast in his exaltation, the rich in their humiliation. So what is it that James is connecting this to? What is this related to? I think the answer is double-mindedness, that thing that we just learned about last week. Remember, verse 5 James says, if you lack wisdom, ask. Six, ask in faith. Seven, faithless requests. Shouldn't expect much. Eight, why? Because you're too sold and you're double-minded. Relatedly, the brother in humble circumstances should boast in his exaltation of the rich and their humiliation. In other words, that wisdom should lead you to boast in exaltation and not riches. A one-souled person knows where their true treasure really lies. The rich who put their faith in their bank account don't know it yet, but there is a humbling coming for them. The two-souled person does not know where, their true treasures lie. Sometimes it's God, and at other times it is wealth. But wisdom will show you it must always be God. I want to say at the outset, is it possible to be a one-sold person and yet have money? The answer is yes. This is not an indictment against people who have a lot of wealth and put their trust wholly in God. What James is doing is an indictment of people who have a lot of wealth and put their trust, all of it, in their bank account. I just want to say that at the the outset because James is using a shortcut term, the rich. Uh, And if you're rich, it's okay to be rich. The question is, where are you putting your hope for eternity? Is it in your bank account or is it in the richness of Christ? James is writing to poor believers in specific If you are a one-souled person who faithfully asked for wisdom and received it, then rejoice even in your humble circumstances. You've received a treasure, an exaltation to true richness that is coming. But he says, boasting and exaltation, boasting and exaltation, that's a bad word, right? We're not supposed to boast, I thought. When it comes to being a Christian, like, isn't boasting a bad thing? Seems exactly opposite to what Paul has been teaching us. Think about Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift from God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And James is like, yeah, but you should boast. Well, Paul also says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And James is like, okay, but you should boast. Then you go back to Paul, and if you've been to a wedding, you know this one, love is patient, love is kind. Love is not envy, it does not boast. James is like, no, boast in your humiliation. What's going on? Do Paul and James disagree? And this is when we cue the chorus of all the critics and the pseudo-scholars that say, yes, so you can't trust the Bible, because everybody's just lobbing artillery at one another, theologically speaking, and they don't even know what's going on. No. What's the answer? I think The answer is found in the Lord Jesus' teaching, Matthew 23. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, boasting per se, boasting in and of itself is not wrong. Boasting in the self is not good. Boasting humbly in God's work is good. It's not boasting that's the problem, it's what we're boasting about. You see, that's the one thing Scripture does tell us explicitly to boast in. Hear Paul's words in Galatians, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world." So again, it's not boasting in and of itself that's wrong. Boasting in the created is wrong. Boasting in the creator is good. It's the object of our boasting, not boasting itself. Boast away in the work of the creator, right? Boast away in the redemptive power of the cross and the glory of the resurrection and Christ's ascension. That's a good thing to do. So for James then, boasting in temporary wealth is sin, but boasting in a future exaltation. Now that's worship. What is the object of our boasting here? Well, wait a minute. James says something specific. He doesn't just say boast. He says, boast in his, in other words, the lowly brothers boast in his exaltation. So what does he mean? He's not talking about boasting as far as I can tell in this broader sense. He's talking specifically about the boasting that's coming in the lowly brother's situation. What does he mean? Again, I think I said this two weeks ago, if James throws you for a loop for a moment, you have to remember how much he is pulling on from the Old Testament and from the teachings of Christ. And when it comes to boasting, I think there's a very clear convention set before us all throughout the Bible, that James is lockstep in line with. The quintessential passage, the go-to passage for boasting in the Bible, I believe, is in Jeremiah. And you will see that James is drawing very closely to Jeremiah. And the passage is this. God is speaking in Jeremiah 9.24. He says, "'Let him who boasts boast in this.'" That he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Now, the context of God saying this is bleak. Israel, things aren't going very well. Jeremiah laments that basically the Jews, the Israelites of the time, are just going from one evil to another evil. Just day after day, moment after moment, sin after sin after sin. And so God warns them of a judgment coming, even a scattering of them among the nations. Does that ring a bell in James? To whom is James writing? He's writing the 12 tribes in dispersion. There has been a scattering, right? Then in Jeremiah, God warns, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. That sound familiar. Let not the mighty man boast in his might and let not the rich man boast in his riches. Does that sound familiar? You see how closely James is holding on to what God has already told his people through Jeremiah. Wisdom and riches, James is drawing from this well. Let us not boast in our wisdom. Let us only cling to a wisdom that comes from God and not man. Let us not boast in our might. We ought to be humble and not proud. And let us not boast in our riches, for riches will wither and fade away. So will witches as well. I don't know if you know that. James, like Jeremiah, is warning us not to boast in anything, but what the Lord does, is doing, and will do. How then can we take that and apply it to the lowly brother boasting in his exaltation? The answer is, how is a lowly brother exalted through the exaltation of Christ? The only way anyone is exalted is through the exaltation of Christ, the resurrection. In Christ's resurrection, he received an incredible inheritance that is talked about all over the New Testament. His exaltation was to the right hand of God. He was exalted as leader and savior to give repentance. When he was resurrected and exalted, God bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, and his exaltation is above the heavens. So by boasting first, In the exaltation of Christ, we subsequently boast in our own exaltation. That is what it means for a lowly brother to boast in his exaltation. Because James knows, his hearers know, their exaltation is welded and secured to the exaltation of Christ. Well, how can that be? And why is that? Well, what did Paul tell us Christ's resurrection is a sign of? He called Christ's resurrection the first fruits of the resurrection. Meaning when a farmer plants a field and you go out and you see that first little seedling crack up against the, the soil, does the farmer think to himself, oh boy, I'm going to get one stalk of corn this year. I'm so excited about this. No, he, means, he knows that that little tiny seedling that has just burst through the soil will soon be followed by the rest. That's what it means that Christ's resurrection is the first fruit of a greater and a grander resurrection. Why? Paul says, because believers are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Keep that verse in mind, because it's going to come back to us later. Elsewhere, Paul emphasizes this point. He underlines it. With Psalm sixty-eight, eighteen, when he says, when he ascended on high, that word's the same as exaltation we see in James, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. Paul's saying all the way back in Psalms was a, a sneak peek of the resurrection. And we should know from the Psalms that when he, the Messiah, is lifted on high, he's leading a host of captives with him. Christ's capital E, exaltation. To the right hand of the Father also means your lowercase e, exaltation. In other words, to a supreme and eternal state of joy that begins now with faith and lasts for eternity. So to sum up all of the background that we see in James so far, what he's bringing to the table is this. We should view our trials with joy knowing that God has made a firm and unbreakable promise that, to quote Christ, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. In, in its relationship to riches, you can see where the temptation might be for a person to exalt themselves in this life. So James continues to press this point, to warn the self-exalters and those who would be tempted by self-exaltation, by filling out with with rich imagery in verses 10 through 11. It says, because like a flower of the grass, he's talking about the rich, will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and the grass withers. The flower falls And beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. It may not seem like it, but this passage has a lot of connections to the Old Testament by using a specific specific terms, really, and and a cultural thing that we might miss uh, here in, in our culture and in our day and in our location. James is using very specific terms to point the readers back to Job and Isaiah and the Psalms. And I want to to talk about those so we can really appreciate what he's trying to say. First, the term scorching heat. That term he uses from an old ancient translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, called the Septuagint. And typically, scorching heat, that exact term, is translated as eastern winds. Well, we don't know what an eastern wind means to us. On the Gulf Coast, winds come from any direction that they please, right? There's no, it's madness. (laughs) But in the Old Old Testament, an eastern wind, if you were uh, an Israelite, meant the wind coming out of the Negev Desert, the wind coming out of the Kidron Valley, the wind essentially coming out of modern-day Syria and Iraq. Uh, Is that a nice, pleasant wind? No, you'd prefer the wind from the Mediterranean. Mediterranean wind is air conditioning, right? Arabian desert wind is death. Have you ever experienced just getting blasted with that kind of heat? I had this this experience just embedded in me. It's like 17 years old when I went to boot camp in San Antonio. And I had been south of Indianapolis maybe twice in my life at that point. It was August and so I knew Texas was hot, but I didn't understand what those three letters in combination meant until I got there. I got off the plane from Chicago, and it can get hot in Chicago, but I'm telling you, it was just nuts to me. I stepped into the jet bridge to connect to the terminal off the plane, and it was so hot, I kid you not, the first thought I had was, why would they put the jet bridge behind the engine and keep the engine on? Like, that doesn't seem very safe that's the only way it could possibly be this hot. So I assured myself, no way it's actually that hot outside. It was actually hotter, and it was 8 p.m. at night. And that was the first time I thought to myself, oh Lord, what have I done? <laughs> that's the kind of heat that he's talking about here. And he's going to play on that heat to relate it to God's judgment. The other uh, term that I want to look at, flower falls, the flower falls. Our grass doesn't have flowers. When you're like, when I mow my St. Augustine grass, there's no flower. You have to imagine uh, a different kind of foliage, flowers on top of grass. And this goes all the way back to Isaiah 46 through 8. And God is commanding Isaiah, a prophet, to warn people of impending judgment. The life as it is won't always be. And in this passage... Isaiah says, a voice says, cry. And I, being Isaiah, said, what shall I cry? Here's the answer. All flesh is grass and all all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. So here's where James is pulling from. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. What causes the grass to wither and the flower to fade? The breath of the Lord. In other words, the scorching heat of God's judgment for those who put their faith in the temporary, in this instance, what is beauty or in the flesh, and not eternal. So that's in James's background as well. Fade away. James uses this unique phrase, fade away. There's only three times that we see it, twice in Job and once in James, fade away. Where does that come from? That comes from Job 24, drought and heat, so here we have the heat showing up again, snatch away snow, water, so does shale for those who have sinned. Yet God prolongs the life of the mighty by his power. They rise up when they despair of life. He gives them security and they are supported And his eyes are upon their ways. They are exalted, there's our word, for a little while and then gone. They are brought low, humbled in humiliation, and gathered up like all others. They are cut off like heads of grain. Again, elements of heat and of perishing. There's a time when the mighty are propped up. But that's only temporary because by God's judgment they are brought low or humbled, as James would say. Again, judgment for those who place their faith in the temporary, this time in their might, and not the eternal. The last one I want to look at is the word pursue. The word pursue. This word is translated in the Old Testament as a procession. Who's been in a procession? You've been in a parade before? Have you ever graduated from college? Are you royalty and were you going home? These are all examples. That last one is a joke. These are all examples of what a procession is. We're familiar with those. A procession is when those with wealth and fame and influence march in great pomp and pride and circumstances to their thrones and do what's needed to keep them in their exaltation. They've slit throats to get there, and they will do anything it takes to stay there. And when those without wealth and fame and influence watch those with wealth and fame and influence, what happens is the people on the sides watching the procession cast their hopes that one day I'm on the sidelines of the street, but I will be in the street. I will be the one with the wealth and the fame and the influence. I will be the one marching to my throne. Essentially, the rich and the powerful flaunt their exaltation. The poor covet the exaltation of the rich and the powerful. And no one is boasting about the power and the richness of God's might. And ironically, what James says is the rich fade away in the midst of his pursuit in the midst of his procession so as the rich person is receiving all of this praise ironically every step he takes is one going down one where their whole uh, their whole might and their whole power and the whole influence is fading into nothingness in other words James here we can see is pulling from an immense source of scripture to weave together a warning that we ought not look for exaltation in all the wrong places, in beauty that fades, in might that is temporary, and in wealth that is destined to dissipate, because as Jimmy Stewart would say, you can't take it with you. Great movie. Why? Because judgment is coming for those who put their hope in the exaltation of the created rather than in the creator. So wisdom from God teaches us that we can joyfully walk through trials knowing that our exaltation out of oppression and out of sin and out of death comes by faith through the exaltation of Christ. And that is what we boast in. The one thing that can rob us of that joy of knowing that our exaltation comes through Christ is foolishly looking to wealth and to material gain to exalt us in the here and now thereby forsaking the true exaltation that comes by faith of here and forever essentially he's saying let the humble boast in god's accomplishments not the accomplishments of humans regardless of who you are humble of lowly means or pride are prideful of rich means. Don't hope for exaltation in riches. Hope for exaltation in the Lord Jesus. Later, James is going to make this point explicitly. When he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you, That's essentially James quoting Jesus. So what? What do we do with all of that? How can we apply that to our lives? I think it's an easy answer to that question, but it's really hard to do. The answer is what we've been saying. Stop looking for exaltation in all the wrong places. It's a universal desire, I think, that humans yearn to be exalted. We all yearn to be exalted. Our immediate response to that desire as believers is to shun it. Because the way we see exaltation in the world is that a person's exaltation is always at somebody else's expense. We never see somebody exalted where everybody is happy, right? Somebody had to lose something so that they can gain. Therefore, we ought not desire exaltation at all. The desire to be exalted must be some kind of sin. I think James would say that's not necessarily true. The desire for exaltation is not the problem, but our idea of what exaltation is, our understanding of what exaltation is, problematic. The desire to be exalted from our present state, I believe, is merely God's image and likeness on us yearning to live in the way things ought to be. Whether you're a believer or you're not, that desire to be exalted is actually rooted in your desire to live in the way that you were designed to live. Are you oppressed? Are you addicted? Have you been sinned against? Do you keep returning to the same sin over and over and over again? And when you recognize that, do you desire to be lifted out of that? That's not a bad desire. That is the desire that comes in its fullness, in its completion, when Christ exalts us out of sin and death. It's not wrong to want to be lifted out of those things. In fact, that's the Christian hope. Looking forward to the recreative act of the cosmos by the Holy Spirit. Read Revelation 21, 1 through 4 with me. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That's where we are and when we are right now. And the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven with God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband bride is shorthand for God's people, the ecclesia, the assembly, every single believer that has been in God's covenant from time past in memoriam until Christ comes again. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. True exaltation is being part of the bride adorned. True exaltation is dwelling with the creator forever true exaltation is having tears wiped away and bidding farewell to mourning and to crying and to pain for eternity. Do you desire that exaltation? That's good. Do you know that exaltation only comes through Christ's capital E exaltation? Even better. James tells us God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs, to the kingdom that we just read about in Revelation, which he has promised to those who love him. Do you demand that exaltation by your means, through your wisdom in the here and now? That's the problem. That's the problem. James has a warning. The world demands what it desires, but does not know it desires now, partly out of impatience. And frankly, I believe partly out of a fear that they think, when they die, that's it. It goes black and there's nothing more. So they look to one of the main competitors of our hearts that we see clearly through scripture, and that is material wealth. And the KJV calls this mammon, mammon. It comes from Jesus' warning in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money in the KJV calls it mammon. You might be familiar with that. Mammon, not God, is their master. Mammon promises exaltation here and now. God's promise of exaltation comes with that unpleasant suffering. Remember what Paul says? Provided we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Mammon says, you don't want to go through that. Why should you change your life? You're the master, you're the commander of your own destiny. I've got the alternative. Are you mourning? Mammon promises you endless happiness through purchasing power and influence. Are you crying? Mammon will give others around you a reason to cry about because you got a super fly outfit and they don't. Your power and prestige, your opulence and influence, you're not crying anymore. People want to be you. Are you in pain? Mammon will offer you the most incredible distractions the world has to give. Cars you don't need, houses too big for your family, entertainment sufficiently distracting enough to make you forget about the pain around you. You can afford all of those things. Here's the problem. Mammon is a liar. He's a liar. Worse, he's telling a lie we want to believe. Mammon is a liar, and he's telling us a lie we want to believe. And that's the greatest secret of the wealthy and the influential. They get what Mammon promises, and at some point in their life, they go, I've been lied to. But they're caught between a hard a rock place because you can't then turn around and say, everything I did to get here was for naught because I stabbed that guy's back, slid that throat, lied here, did terrible things here, or whatever it was to get to this point, and now I'm unhappy. It has to be an incredibly unpleasant Experience to get there. And I think we see bits and pieces of this, even in our own culture. Sometimes the wealthy who place their hope in mammon tip their cards a little bit too much. Who knows John Mayer? John Mayer, a phenomenal musician, early 2000s, the late 2000s. The pinnacle of his career was about like 10 years ago now. I'm sorry if you're still a John Mayer fan. He's not put anything out good uh, in the past five years. Just saying. So he reached the pinnacle of his musical career. He received fame and influence and wealth, and yet Mayer was still empty. He wrote a song about it. And the lyrics went like this. I'm not going to sing it. Uh, That would be awful for all of you. Something's missing, and I don't know how to fix it. Something's missing, and I don't know what it is. No, I don't know what it is. Friends? Check. Money? Check. Well slept? Check. Check. Opposite sex? Check. Guitar? Check. Microphone? Check. Messages waiting on me when I come home? Check. But still, something's missing, and I don't know what it is, and I don't know how to fix it. He had everything Mammon could offer. Mammon gave him friends, gave him money, gave him comfort, gave him sex, gave him a successful career, gave him influence of messages waiting on him when he gets home. Still, this exaltation was insufficient because mammon is a weak God. This is a psychologist, Robert Kenny, who's the associate, or assistant associate director uh, in Boston College's uh, Center for Wealth and Philanthropy. And uh, he says there's a threshold in America where if you make about $250 million or more, it offers freedom that uh, can only be attained at that level. And there's three types of freedom. He calls one temporal freedom, the ability to do whatever you want. The spatial freedom, the ability to acquire whatever you want. And psychological freedom. You're free from daily anxieties uh, of an inability to provide or shelter yourself. But he says common across the board. In studying people that make $25 million or more with these three freedoms, is that there is still something that they deeply yearn for, but they can't get. He says, inevitably, they all go to, it must be because I I need to give away. And so they go through this phase of charity. And yet, even after the phase of charity is terminated, they return and they still feel empty. And he has this incredible quote: This is not a Christian. Not, not a biblical perspective at all. He's just telling you what he sees. And the quote is this. You can't buy your way out of the human condition. That's incredible from a secular psychologist. You cannot buy your way out of the human condition. You cannot exalt yourself out of the human condition. And you know, when people disagree and they do, there's usually a reason for it. I found one gal that said, no, 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 money can buy you happiness. Her name was Ruth Whitman. Ruth Whitman. She was writing for The Guardian. She says, instead of being embarrassed to admit that money brings happiness, we should be shouting it from the rooftops, printing it on fridge magnets. I don't know what the fridge magnet is. And using it as a rallying cry for social action. Money makes us happy. Suggesting otherwise doesn't make us spiritually enlightened or morally superior. It makes us clueless. Well, why would she say that? Well, for one, she was senior producer on The Apprentice, a, a show that like basically manufactures human exaltation. And second, she makes her money by selling books about how money can make you happy, right? Always peek behind the curtain if something doesn't seem right. <laughs> Friends, are you poor in spirit? Are you oppressed, an outcast, widowed, lowly in the world's eyes? Why do you look to the acquisition of wealth and fame and influence for your exaltation? Are you rich? Why do you look to the maintenance of your wealth and fame and influence as your exaltation? James says, stop looking for exaltation in all the wrong places. Beauty fades, power and influence are merely temporary And wealth is destined to dissipate. Nothing in creation can provide the rescue and redemption that your soul at its deepest recesses yearns for but the creator. He has provided a way through his death and his resurrection. Die to yourself with him. Rise with him in his victorious exaltation. Start looking to Christ's exaltation the ultimate victory over sin and our eternal source of joy. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for our brother James and the Apostle James' words, how they cut straight to the soul, and they affect every single one of us. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that does not look to the temporary, Wealth and influence and fame, whether we have it or not, for our exaltation. But we would look to Christ, that we would joyfully endure suffering and trials, knowing that we are caught up in Christ's ascension. That in that moment when he returns, we will be like the bride adorned, married, so to speak, to your son for eternity where Satan, sin, and death, and trials and suffering are all gone. Lord, Lord, our, our souls yearn for that. And we thank you that you made it available solely through faith in your son's work alone. We love you. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.